guys may be seated. People are fickle, aren't they? Fickle, not pickle. Saying, no, 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 I'd never use performance-enhancing drugs. And then within the last 10 days, you see, well, there's rumors of him confessing. And then last Thursday on Oprah, he confessed. Why Oprah? I don't know, but he confessed. People are fickle. They say one thing and change their minds, aren't they? Yes, thank you. Yes, we can talk back and forth today. This would be good. A little smaller group means a little dialogue, a little banter. A couple weeks back at the Newtown shooting, the NRA, National Rifle Association, comes out and says it's not guns that are the problems. It is the video games that are infecting the kids' minds. Okay, that's part of it. Yes, and then within the last week, they put out and start promoting and endorsing their newest video game aimed at kids at age four. People are fickle, aren't they? Yes. I used to think it was just a junior high girl phenomenon. Okay, you know, you know them. They say one thing when they're in the, pro, in, the, in the presence of certain people and then, like nobody's business, something clicks and then they, they're saying something else. They're acting a different way. They're, they're, oh, their moods, their tones, they're fickle. I've come to the conclusion it's not just junior high girls. I think it is a humanity trait. And I think it's been going on for a long, long time. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we see this fickleness in this chapter. On a side note, I want to encourage you guys each Sunday to be bringing your Bibles. We're going to be spending time in specific texts. This gives you a chance, if you bring your Bibles, to write in the margins, to underline so that hopefully the things that are being said on Sunday morning stick with you. Last week, we looked at how Jesus began his ministry career. We ultimately came down to the fact that he began it focused on others. As we came to that conclusion, we saw that crowds, even the hometown crowds where he grew up, were very passionately impressed by Jesus. They were praising him. Luke 4, 15, as remember it, it says, Jesus taught regularly in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. Jump down to verse 22, it says, Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. This is where we stopped last week. And I want to continue from this exact spot. And I want you to watch as the almost immediate fickle shift in the people's reactions and responses to Jesus. Luke chapter 4, verses 22 through 30. Everyone spoke well of Jesus and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then Jesus said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly, there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they, 
heard this. The people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed Jesus and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he pushed, he passed right by them, right through the crowd, and went on his way. You know, one minute they're like, yeah, Jesus, this guy is pretty awesome. He is the greatest. And then the minute they're like, grab him. Let's go. There's a cliff. We're going to throw him off. People are fickle, aren't they? I mean, what, what caused this? How in the world did this happen? What took place? Was it something Jesus said? Was it something he did? You know, I wrestled with these questions this last week, and I was reminded of the old Choose Your Old Adventure books. You guys remember those? Okay, for those who are too young, let me explain them. I used to love those as, as I felt like I had some sort of say in the story. What would happen is the author would write and write up until a certain point in the book, a climactic event. And then he'd give you a couple different options to choose from. And you got to choose, do you go here, do you go there, do you go to the next place? And the author would write endings for each of those. So you chose and you, sent, and you were sent to a certain page where the author picked up the story from the direction you decided to go. In case it's confusing still, let me give a little example. Let's say I was writing a book about a damsel in distress. Good book, yeah? I don't think there's any out there like that. Damsel in distress. The hero sees her off from a distance, tied up to some train tracks. You know, the train is coming far away off. Oh, no, what will happen? Choose your own adventure. You got choice A. The hero jumps on his horse, rides as fast as he can, and unties the damsel just before the train runs over her. You could choose that choice. Choice B, the hero happens to be the best shooter in all the West Coast. So right where he's at, he takes aim and shoots the ropes off the damsel, who graciously gets up, waves at him, walks away. Right? That's choice B. Or choice C, the hero realizes he can't shoot that far or ride that fast, so he rides to the local telegraph depot and has them send a telegraph to the train, which stops just in time. Choose your own adventure. You understand the books now, right? Okay. In the book, the author writes all three scenarios and you choose whichever works. Usually two of the three of them ends in a very quick ending to the story. And here you find yourself kind of frustrated like, shoot, what happened? And you got to backtrack to figure out what was more correct and how the story actually continues. I always had a way of choosing those endings. You know, I'd go to page 316 and the ending would be about a paragraph. Your person died. Go back and try again. Choose your own adventure. How does this relate to our text today? Well, in, my, in my study this past week, I found two main reasons I felt like the people could have turned on Jesus as quickly as they did. And I wanted to give you guys the choice to pick which direction I went with the sermon. Here's your two choices. Why did the crowds turn on Jesus so quickly? A. Jesus because the hometown boy was claiming to be a prophet. Or B, the crowds turned on Jesus because of his message of others, his focus on others. Your choice. Okay? Why did the crowds turn on Jesus as quickly as they did? I'll read your two choices again. Only two choices, and then we'll let you vote as to which way we should go. A, the crowds turned on Jesus because the hometown boy was claiming to be a prophet. Or B, the crowds turned on Jesus because of his focus on his message, which was other people. For those who think we should go the direction of choice A, raise your hand. 
Oh, come on, raise it like you mean it. Yes, I, we're having some interaction today. Okay, for those who think we should choose option B, raise your hand. Okay, good. A couple more people. We're going to go with option B. The crowds turned on Jesus because of his message of others. Are you just saying that because that's what was preached on last week? Oh, okay. Well, we'll go with it anyways. Last week, we came to the conclusion that Jesus came for the poor, for the blind, for those who were oppressed. And we looked at how big these groups actually were, both taken literally and spiritually. Jesus was definitely others-focused. This was picked up again in this week, verse 23. I think, yeah, verse 23. Then Jesus said, you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Now, if you go and look in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, you won't find that proverb. Because that was a common proverb back in antiquity. And that meant that you should take care of your own relatives first. When someone said that, they were saying you should take care of those you know before venturing out, before neglecting or refusing to do one's own relations the favor that you do to somebody else. You should not benefit others while refusing the same benefits to other people. That was the meaning of that proverb, and of course that was explained by Jesus. He said, you'll undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like Capernaum. I can see Jesus striking a surface-level nerve here. See, the people had heard that Jesus had done some pretty amazing things in Capernaum. And they were probably wanting the same type of show there in their hometown. And, and why wouldn't they? I'm going to pick on Jerry Prophet because Jerry Prophet's not here this morning. Can I, can I use him as an example, Art? Jerry Proffert was pretty much born and raised in this church. He started coming at age three, and he's now in his mid to late 60s. That's why I'm using Jerry Proffert, okay? If Jerry Proffert became a famous magician, performing some pretty amazing tricks, you know, death-defying brilliance, perhaps even getting his own TV show on New Year's Eve, we would expect him to do the same things for us when he came home, right, to his church home. We would expect that some of the great magic tricks he did for all the world to see, the least he could do was do it here in front of us. Right? I mean, we've had a huge part in shaping Jerry, in his spiritual formation, in his life formation. So the least he could do is show us his greatness here. I think Jesus struck a surface-level nerve in this first part. But I think as he continued on, he would have cut to the heart of any nerves left in his hometown audience. Let's continue to read in verse 25. Jesus said, Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner to a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but only one was healed. It was named Naaman, a Syrian. Let's overlook the fact that Elijah and Elisha were two of Israel's finest prophets. And let's look closely at those two stories themselves. Who was Jesus emphasizing? Who was he pointing out in those stories? Was it an Israelite widow who he cared for, who was cared for? Was it an Israelite leper who was healed? No. No, on either case. The widow was from Zarephath, who, which was definitely not a Jewish place. 
And the leper, oh, don't tell this story, Jesus. Please don't tell this story. The leper was a Gentile who happened to be an army officer, a commanding army officer of the opponent's army. This would not have been what the locals in Nazareth wanted to hear. For them, they would have wanted to hear, fight the enemy, destroy them, separate from the Gentiles. We are a chosen people, God's people. And yet in those examples, Jesus seems to be saying, it's the enemy who's receiving redemption and restoration and healing. It's the enemy who God is working on and with. This would have been similar to telling somebody during the World War II time, somebody in Britain or France or Poland, that God was in the business of restoring, forgiving, and healing Hitler. Can you see the rub for the people in Nazareth? Those listening to Jesus in the synagogue that day, listening to him read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, would have been expecting Jesus to focus on something completely different. Let me show you why. You can just listen. This is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's what Jesus said. Those were the passages he quoted. But the locals, those in Nazareth, they would have known what came next. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against his enemies. Verse 11, same chapter, the sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. Jesus didn't quote those parts, though, in Luke 4. He left those out. And in fact, verses 18 and 19, and then the ones we read in 25 to 27, Jesus appears not to be emphasizing the vengeance or the wrath of God, but God's grace and his welcoming of all people. You know, if Jesus had truly grown up in Nazareth, he would have sat in on the conversations in the synagogues during the week in the evenings. As the men of Nazareth sat around and talked about, you know, what, what does this text mean? Or what does that text mean? And, and he would have wrestled with this text in Isaiah. And he would have known the people's understanding of what that text meant. So to come into town that day and take it a different direction, this would have been a blatant attack on their theology, on the way the Nazareth people expected their faith to be practiced and lived out. This would have been an attack on the way they expected God to work. What the people of Nazareth could have been doing was reading their Bibles the way they wanted to read them. Emphasizing the parts they felt needed emphasizing and failing to look at the bigger picture. Even if that bigger picture was more realistic and a more holistic view of the whole prophet Isaiah. See, the Nazareth natives chose to focus on God's vengeance on his enemies. But a reported theme, excuse me, a repeated theme in Isaiah is actually God's pursuit and welcoming of the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, verse 6, speaking of the Lord's chosen servant, God says, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you. I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them, and you will be a light to the nations. Seven chapters later, same book, 
book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 49, verse 6. God says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you guys see a common theme? Isaiah 56, verses 6, 7, and 8. I will bless foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord and who serve him and love his name, because my temple will be called a house of prayer for who? All nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says, I will bring others. I will bring others besides my people Israel. God's overarching story in Isaiah and frankly through the entire Bible is that he desires everyone to come to him, Jews and non-Jews. Now this should be a glorifying, tremendously awesome, joy-inspiring, go-tell-it-on-the-mountain type message, but... But for those listening to Jesus, go there. Don't go there, Jesus. Don't go with grace, acceptance, and pursuit. Not while in the presence of your childhood friends and relatives who were so expecting to hear of a Messiah who would come and free them from the awful enemy. Having Jesus go this direction would have been enough to cause some rage, yes? It would have been enough to cause some people to get pretty ticked off and, at Jesus and, you know, maybe get mad enough to throw him off a cliff. Maybe the fickleness of the Nazareth natives wasn't so far-fetched. Choice B. That's a good choice. Well done. You guys mind just for kicks if I do choice A also? Okay, good. You're still interested. Choice A was this, because you know you got to go back in that choose-your-own-adventure and see what the author wrote the other way. The crowds turned on Jesus because he was a hometown boy claiming to be a prophet. Had you chose this first, I would have also said, hey, good choice. Luke 4, 18 and 19, we read it a little bit earlier. It's when Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bring sight to the blind, to proclaim, proclaim captives will be released. For the most part, this was a direct quote from Isaiah 61. You heard it in section B. And Jesus is so bold as to say a few verses later, you know what, that's me. I am fulfilling this passage. Although it doesn't say it directly in Isaiah 61, throughout the rest of Isaiah, when, when Isaiah talks about this suffering servant, he is stating a messianic figure, a specific person with a, with a specific purpose given by God. Now Jesus, to say what he did, well, it was bold. As we saw last week, Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. This was where he grew up. These were the people he knew and knew him. We can guess from a minimum, ages 12 to 30, Jesus was simply part of the local community. He would have built shelves and tables for his neighborhood. He would have worshipped in the synagogue with the locals. He would have sat in on those evening discussions with the men in the temple, in the synagogue. Bottom line, for Jesus to come into the hometown and say things like he did as awe-inspiring as they were at first, it was bound to ruffle some feathers, which it did. In the second half of verse 22, they said, how can this be? Isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? Jeff, is your, your youngest as an example? Okay, Sage Lund, how old? Four? Three. Okay, Sage Lund, Beth and Jeff's son. Part of our body since, growth, since birth. Let's fast forward a few years. He grows up, graduates from high school here, goes off to a little college, and then comes back to First Church, claiming he's pretty big time. In fact, he's claiming, you know what, I'm a 
the same level as Dwight Moody, who founded the college here in town. I'm on the same level as Billy Graham. Oh, wait, no. You need to put me on the same level as the John Wesley. Okay, see how crazy this sounds for young Sage Lund to come back? Now, I would guess if he were to come back and tell you, I've got a message from God. God wants me to point out your blind spots. There would be a, some speculation on your part. Yeah, I mean, even more so if he were to tell you, you guys need to grow in certain areas, change in certain areas, respond to God in certain areas. You may get a bit defensive. You know, isn't this just Sage Sage Lund? I mean, of course he's going to say these things. He knows us. Young Mr. Sage sat in on our conversations. He heard our struggles. He saw saw us when we hit our thumb when we were building this playset. Of course he knows these things. And now he's claiming to see the ruts, excuse me, the traditions that we are in. And now he's claiming God sent him and we should believe him? Ah, ah, not young Mr. Sage. Verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Jesus goes on then to talk about two of the greatest prophets Israel has ever had. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah, the great prophet who battled those prophets of Baal, right? He was taken up into heaven by a flaming chariot. Surely Jesus wasn't comparing himself to Elijah. He wasn't putting himself in the same category, in the same sentence of that great man of faith. Was he? You see how the locals could have got a little bit miffed? Elisha. Oh, man, he became Elijah's successor, successor, and he got a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He did some crazy prophet stuff. He changed bad drinking water for an entire city into good drinking water. He filled the widow's jars to an overabundance of olive oil. He raised the Shunammite sons from the dead, son from the dead. He had famine miracles, healings, floating axe heads. Elisha was the man. And it appears that Jesus is putting himself in the same category. To the locals in Nazareth, this local carpenter's son had crossed a line. This guy's claiming to be a prophet. Okay, a false prophet maybe, and if that was the case, the locals from Nazareth, they were then fulfilling their duty to the law. Deuteronomy 13.5 says the false prophets or visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death, for they encourage rebellion against the Lord your God. That was their law. So it's not surprising we read that when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. Perhaps their fickleness in their view of Jesus wasn't so fickle after all when you look at it from their perspective. Choice A, choice B. Let's go back to the Choose Your Own Adventure books. You know, the joy and the frustration in them is that you don't just make one choice. You choose, and then you follow that choice to the end, which means you either backtrack or you go on to another set of options. We've got a similar scenario, though unwritten, in today's texts. We've explored why the locals from Nazareth would have been so fickle, going from a clapping to wanting to kill Jesus. But now we've come to the next choice. Jesus had to choose how he related, excuse me, how he reacted to the nearest and dearest to him. He had to make a choice, frankly one, a choice in the heat of the moment as the crowds are forcing him up the hill to push him off the cliff. 
I again say that Jesus had two choices. First choice, Jesus could have backpedaled. He could have made a few apologize, uh, apologies and said, let me clarify something. Let me clarify what I, what, I, what I meant to say. He could have tried to smooth things over with his friends and neighbors. He could have used the conflict management skills he was taught in trade school. Okay? Now, if he did that and did that well enough, perhaps the locals of Nazareth would have continued to invite him to teach in the synagogue. But only as long as he taught the understandings of scriptures that those in town already believed. Not questioned or challenged them. As long as he kept things copacetic. I think Jesus could have chose that. That was choice one for him. Or choice B, he could have left. He could have left. There's no need to explore both options as our text is very clear as to what choice Jesus made. Second half of verse 29 says they intended to push him over the cliff, but Jesus passed right through the crowd and went on his way. He went on his way. There's no evidence that Jesus ever went back to Nazareth. At least no trips back home that we see in the Gospel of Luke or any of the other Gospels. Jesus simply left. Did he leave angry? Did he leave feeling he'd been wronged? We don't know. Did he completely give up on those people who he had spent so many years growing up with? Did he ever pray for them? Or encourage some of his disciples to go back to Nazareth after the dust had settled and, and try and point them towards Jesus again? We don't know that either. The text simply tells us he went on his way. To me, those four words are the most important words in this entire passage. To me, those four words tell us Jesus had a mission. He had it laid out very clearly. He came for others. He was the Messiah, as described in the prophets, and God sent him to welcome anyone and everyone who would have him, even if that meant crossing long-held boundaries, even if that saying, you know what, this is a different understanding of the scripture than you are used to. Jesus was on a mission, a mission given by God, and he was not going to be deterred from that mission. If that mission meant being ridiculed, being rejected by those potentially closest to him, by his friends, by his neighbors, by becoming an outcast in his own home church, Jesus was willing to walk away in order to stay true to the mission of God. Jesus was willing to walk away in order to stay true to the mission of God. That's powerful. It's powerful indeed. Now, as Jesus walked away from the hill that day, I had to wonder, did he think the words that he would one day inspire Paul to write? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. Did Jesus think, I am going to finish what God has called me to start? I am going to choose that adventure. Good story, huh? So what? What does that have to do with us? What does this all mean to us? First Free Methodist Church, have you made any connections with the story this morning? Has what I said hit home at all? If not, Allow me to connect a few dots. Your life is going to be a choose-your-own-adventure story. God has given you free will. He has allowed you to make choices that will affect your days to come. How will you choose? What will you choose? It's my question. When one of your own 
be it young Sage Lun or anyone else, claims to have a message from God, maybe even a message that would require some serious heart and life wrestling because it's a message that addresses the way things have always been done or the way we've always been taught, will you listen? Will you be receptive enough to hear the whispers of God through the voice of one of your own? What will you choose? I would guess that if you follow Jesus for any length of time, if you share your faith in a risen Christ, in a God and flesh Messiah, that at some point in your life you will hear similar rebuttals to what our first Choose Your Own Adventures had. Maybe today we'll take, maybe people today will take a little less offense at Jesus claiming to be a prophet. But maybe they'll simply want to claim that that's all he was. Jesus was only a prophet and nothing more. So when we claim that Jesus was more, that he was the Son of God, that he was God stepped into humanity, and as God, he has the capability to make us right with the Heavenly Father. When we claim Jesus as the only way, there will be people who take great offense to that. And frankly, they may not try and throw you off a cliff, but they may still try and kill your reputation. They may try and destroy you through rumors and lies, calling you exclusive and unloving and unbiblical. What will you do next? Maybe there'll be times when you go outside your normal Christian, comfortable life and reach into the lives of others, others who do not yet know Christ, but with you could be on their way to knowing Christ. And in those times, I tell you, you are likely to ruffle some of your Christian friends' feathers. Because frankly, they're going to be hurt. Those closest to you, they've been your entire world, are going to see you focused on other people, and they're going to say to you, well, what are you doing hanging out with? You fill in the blank. With the emos, with the bingo players, with those who listen to rock and roll, with those in the other political party. What are you doing hanging out with them? What do you do when those closest to you threaten to disown you because you are showing Christ to others? Are you willing to walk away? Are you so bought into the mission, the vision, the heartbeat that God has given you that you are willing to risk it all, lose it all for the sake of Jesus Christ? Are you willing to go on your way? These are big questions. Life-altering, potentially relationship-damaging questions I'm asking. I realize that. But there will come a time when you'll have to make those choices. And let me tell you, it's your adventure to choose. Are you willing to choose Christ over anything else? Are you willing to choose Christ over anything else? Maybe this is how we bring it home and make it personal. I'm guessing that you're not going to have to make that walk away from your friends, family, and neighbor choice every day. Though God could, I don't think he would ask us to every single day. But you will be asked to make smaller choices every day. You will have to choose Christ over making an idol of your job, over making an idol of your kids, over making an idol of your pastimes. You will be asked to choose a Christ-like response when you're cut off in the parking lot on your way out of church this morning. You will be asked to make 100 choices every single day that will determine whether or not you are willing to walk away from what you know and what you are comfortable with. Track with me? You following? You're going to make tons of choices because we've got tons of distractions that will affect how your life, this choose-your-own-adventure life, 
how those choices and actions that speak louder than words if you are claiming to be bought into the mission Christ has put on your life, how will you choose? I want to give us a little bit of time to reflect on that question. Some time to simply allow Christ to speak to your hearts. Maybe he will speak to your hearts on something big, something life-changing. Maybe it'll be something small. During this time, I want you to take these little cards that were stapled to your bulletin. Okay, there's two of them there. Take them, and I want you to fill out the rest of that sentence. It says, today I make the choice to follow Jesus instead of. Today I make the choice to follow Jesus instead of. Fill out both cards with the same answer. And sometime during our quiet reflection, we're going to have a, a video. We're also going to sing a song. I'd like you to put one of those cards back in your Bible so you remember. And then I'd like you to, uh, this, is, this is different, I'd like you to get up and go and put the other card in one of those two boxes in the back under those windows. It's one of those steps, those physical steps of I'm, I'm willing to commit to this. Don't put your name on the card. I don't need to know who wrote it. You'll know what you committed to. And God will know what choice you are making. The question this morning is, in your choose-your-own-adventure life, will you choose Jesus and his way over everything else? I want to pray. Then we'll watch a video with a song on it. The worship team will come forward and we'll sing that same song in this time of reflection. Allow God to speak to your heart. Fill out your card. Put one in your Bible. Take the other back to the boxes. Lord God, I thank you for the example you have given us in Jesus Christ. God, there's so much in your word that I can't even imagine. I mean, giving up your only son to come to earth as a sacrifice. That, that's, that's huge. Being willing to walk away from everything you know, from those who are dear to you, from those who love you and those you love, for the sake of the mission of God. God, that's crazy. And yet as followers of Christ, I've got to believe that you are pushing us towards that. God, I know there's people who are already living that sold-out life, who are already living every choice based on you. I know there's others who are still waiting for that push. God, may today be that push. May we be challenged this morning to choose you in this adventure that we are on with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.